0: If you have your Bibles, please go to Jeremiah chapter 32, as well as Ephesians chapter 2. We will be in both this morning, hence, hence the... Jeremiah 32 reading earlier, my first hope is to help us see this morning what Paul is specifically talking about here in Ephesians 2, but I want to also, kind of as a second goal this morning, to help us see that this finds its roots a long, long time ago. Uh, What Paul is actually going to expound, particularly in these like seven verses that we've been working through and we'll finish today, six and seven, that this is a fulfillment of a promise that God made a long time ago. And if it's connected to that promise that he made a long time ago, then there's parts of this promise, if you will, in Jeremiah 32 that Paul doesn't pick up on, but have application to it. So what I'm saying is, there's parts in Jeremiah 32 that Paul doesn't explicitly state, but are still certainly true. And I think that helps give even more light to what he's saying in Ephesians 2. So so what I mean by that is that, the rest of the Bible has an important part to play whenever we come to understanding any particular passage. Uh, and it's and I want to encourage you in your own study that when it comes to the Word of God, it's, it's, it's compounding. You're not just adding a piece of knowledge whenever you study a passage. It's actually a piece of knowledge that's connected and going to shine greater light on a bunch of other pieces of knowledge from God's Scripture. And so that's why I want you to see that, if you'd read Jeremiah 32 and familiar with Jeremiah 32, then that gives light to Ephesians 2, and shines, it shine, makes it shine more brightly. And if you know Ephesians 2, and you look back at Jeremiah 32, then it helps Jeremiah 32 to shine more brightly in our eyes and hopefully captivate our hearts. So I want to read Jeremiah 32 verses 37 through 41. It says this. Listen to these words. Behold, this this is God, right? God talking. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. Take note. I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant, that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. (laughs) What a statement! And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness. With all my heart, God says, and with all my soul, I will do this. I want to point out to you a few quick things. And really what I want you to do is tuck Jeremiah 32 and what I'm going to talk about here for a few seconds in the back of your mind. And keep that there as we work through Ephesians 2 and see the parallels between the two. So just briefly, I want to point out these things. Think about God's great promise. This is God actually promising a coming new covenant. No longer the old covenant, not the covenant made with Adam, not the covenant made with Noah, the covenant made with Abraham, or the covenant made with David, the old covenant. He's talking about something new, something new to come, something coming in the future. Verse 37, he says this. He says, he will take a people who are deserving of his wrath. Don't miss that. These people don't deserve heaven, they don't deserve God, they deserve wrath. Matter of fact, they experienced some of God's wrath and His great indignation and His anger. These wicked people that He punished, ultimately by scattering them into exile. You don't want to be my people? Well, will go be ruled by other kings. Go be ruled in other regions. That is your punishment. And then He says, and... The next part of 37, I will bring them back. I will make them dwell in safety. He doesn't say, I will provide for them an opportunity to come to safety. He goes, I will make it happen. And what does he say in verse 39? He says, I will give them one heart and one way that they will never turn away. God will do this. I will do this. I will give you something new that that you won't walk away anymore. I mean, I'm thinking about it. If you're a Jew hearing these words, you're going, wow, I mean, I hope so because we've walked away a hundred times over and we've been punished a hundred times over. But God says, I will give them one heart that fears the Lord forever. A heart that will fear the Lord as they should in awe and wondering of His power. And he goes on in verse 40, he says, this will be an everlasting covenant. Now that's the key phrase in helping us understand that Jeremiah 32 is, is speaking to us and not just the Jews of the Old Testament. Because this everlasting covenant, we know now is the covenant that's in Jesus that will last forever, that will never end. So just in case you're thinking, oh, this is the Old Testament, this is for the Jews. No, it's not, it's for us. This will be an everlasting covenant covenant, the new covenant in Christ. Again, because only this covenant will last forever. And he says, I will do these things. And then in all of that, in all of this action that God's going to take, he says in the second part of verse 40, he says, "I listen to these, listen, listen to these words. I will not turn away from doing good to them. Think about that. Those deserving wrath, He did something to make them so that He can never cease in doing good to them. God's plan here is to make a people. What He's talking about is to make a people for Himself and to never stop doing good to those people. And then in verse 41, as if that was not enough, it says, I will rejoice and doing them good. God will find joy in doing good to his people. Not only does this not only does he this his good for his people come from his mercy and his love as we saw in verse 4 of Ephesians, but he also does this and finds great joy in doing it. Think about it this way. God does this. God's going to do this. God's going to take a people, make them for himself, and do good to them. Why? For Ultimately, for his joy. What's that mean? He's going to do this for his own great pleasure. God is going to take pleasure in making a people for himself and do good to them. So these people who are rebels of his, enemies of his, he's going to change their hearts and do good to them for all of eternity. Why? Because he enjoys it. And because he takes pleasure in it. I want you to keep all that in mind, if you can. As we think about this, and go to Ephesians 2. God finds great pleasure in doing good to his children. I don't know if we think about that or consider that, but God delights in doing good to his children. God finds joy in rescuing rebels and transforming them into worshipers. I think what tends to happen is that we tend, if we have any inclination of God finding joy and doing good to his children, then we tend to, to use that to justify, well, everything in life's got to be good. Like, by our standard and our definition. And That's not necessarily what he's talking about here. He's doing good from God's vantage point, what is good for us. So just keep that in mind. It's a side note. That was free. Now, what I want you to do is keep all that in mind Of Jeremiah as we go into Ephesians chapter 2. That was my intro. Now Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 through 7. Let's actually, I'm going to go. I want to start in the beginning of chapter 2. Only 4 through 7 will be on the screen. If you have your Bibles, chapter 2, verse 1. He says this And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul leaves no stone unturned. Do not miss the weight of verse 1-3. Because if you do, you'll miss the weight of verse 4 when Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which He loved us. That even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. Oh, by grace, you've been saved. and He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, I want to pray. Father, oh, that Your people would see that You desire to do good for them, not just today, but in the ages to come. Ages upon ages upon ages upon ages. You desire, You have planned to show Your people the immeasurable riches of Your grace in kindness in kindness towards those who are in Jesus. Let us grasp at least a bit of this today. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Alright. Whew. Maybe we should just pray now and go home. Alright, so we talked about this so far. We were dead, we're following the course of the world. Slaves to the commands of our flesh, destined for hell. Then because of God's mercy and great love, he does what? He makes us alive. He does something inside of our hearts that makes us alive. Now, I want to point out that he doesn't do this for the whole world. But it's because of his great love. Yes, God loves the world. But he has a special love for his people that leads him in mercy to show them and make them alive. Now Paul, what he's going to do now is develop for us the thought of believers being made alive with Christ. So that I'd have made alive with Christ. That's the main verb of these first seven verses. That's the, the main thrust of this as the second sentence particularly. So he's going to explain that. He's going to help us more fully understand what happens as he has made us alive with Christ. And so that's going to be the thrust of today's sermon. You need to understand that in the back of Paul's mind, though, as we go into these next couple verses, that when he speaks of being brought to life and raised with Christ, as we've just read, what did he say in chapter 1, verse 20 and 21? Let's read that real quick. It says that he worked in Christ... When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. For above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in the age, but also in the one to come. You see what Paul just said about Christ, about God, Christ, what he's doing with Christ. He's getting ready to say the same thing about us. Paul has in mind this great truth about Jesus when he says this very similar thing about us. And I want you to see, first and foremost, like Christian, you have been made alive and brought into the very throne room of heaven. And you cannot miss that. If you want another sub-point underneath there, Together with Christ. has brought you together with Christ. Jessica, can you bring me a tissue? Thank you. <laughs> Two. Thank you. Excuse me. All right. Together with Christ. All right, here's why so you have... Two verbs here that are going to follow made us alive. Look in your, ver- look in your Bible. It's in verse 6. He says raised. And then a, a few words later he says seated. Those are two verbs. Those verbs are like dependent on the main verb, which is made us alive. So he made us alive, raised, and seated. Both of them are compound words with the word with. So think raised with, seated with. And then it's qualified by the phrase that comes later, in Christ. Indicating that what God did for Christ, He did at the same time for believers. Raised with Christ, seated with Christ. It's not just that we accompanied Christ on some journey, but that God unites us to Christ. That God puts us with Christ, so He unites us with Christ, and so He can raise us with Christ, and that He can seat us with Christ I mean think think about that just that fact alone that God the creator of the world sustainer who is just and merciful pours out his wrath due to us on his son I mean if there were any different degrees of death then Jesus was more dead than anyone ever having experienced the wrath of God he defeats death and sin and Satan and a single swoop. And God raises Jesus from the grave all the way to the very throne room of God to be seated at His right hand. And Paul is saying that God unites His children to this very thing. This thing. He unites His children to. And so Paul explains this. The first thing is this. You were raised up. You were raised us up with Christ. You were raised up with Christ. Thank you for correcting that. Thank you. (laughs) You were raised up with Christ. Ephesians 2 6. Where did you get that from? Paul says it right there. And raised us up with him. I'd encourage you later this week to go read Colossians 2, verse 12, Colossians 3, verse 1. You see, the resurrection of believers with Christ has already taken place. He has raised us up with Him. Think back to Jeremiah. Those who were dead have now been raised up. Think back to Jeremiah. They have been resurrected with new hearts and soon to get new bodies. Jeremiah speaks of these people who were dead They were scattered underneath the wrath of God. And then God brings them back to Himself, making them alive and raising them up. Now this idea of being raised up is, think of, when He says raised up, think resurrection. Think you were dead, now you're alive. Not raised up necessarily like in this like. Like, he's taking you from this level to this level, you know, or from this elevation to this elevation. No, he's talking about is you were dead. You were in the elevation called dead, and now you're in the elevation called alive. So we think resurrection. Okay? Everybody got that? That's an important thing. I mean, I don't know about you. When I think raised, I think of, you know, he just lifted me up because I'm short, you know. He didn't. He's talking about you were dead. Now you're alive. This is the only thing that makes sense of Romans chapter 6, verse 4. See... Let me, let me back up. A lot of people want to teach, well, you know, we're, we're kind of alive because that's how we can choose God. And then, once we choose God, then we're somehow more alive. Right? So it's like we all have enough aliveness in order to choose God. Right? And then we then choose God and, and become more alive. Paul says, he didn't say that, he didn't say different degrees of aliveness, just like there's not different degrees of deadness. You were dead, now you're alive. And that's the only thing that can make sense of Romans chapter 6 verse 4. He says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in what? Newness of life. We are buried with him in his baptism and his death, in order that just as Christ raised him from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. Just a few verses later in verse 13 of Romans 6, he says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God, look here, as those who have been brought from, what? Aliveness to a better degree of of aliveness? No. From death to life. And he says, and your members, meaning present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So those who have been brought from death to life present themselves as instruments for God's righteousness. How can believers be expected to walk in newness of life or to behave as those who have been brought from death to life? if this isn't a present reality. And I want you to think about this. <clears throat> Those who've been brought from death to life walk <coughs> in newness of life. People who've been brought from death to life walk as though they're alive. Now, I want to, to think with you for just a second if, if you're Maybe just beginning to follow Christ, or do, kind of still thinking through some of this. What does this mean to be a follower of Jesus? I want to encourage you. It's going to sound negative, but I want to encourage you this way. You, you cannot walk in newness of life unless you've been brought from death to life. That's what Paul's saying. What this means is that you will continue to live this life trying to look new or trying to do it in such a way that, that maybe God will look highly upon you someday. Maybe, maybe that's what will get you into heaven. But the reality is, is that you, you can't walk in newness of life. God says you need a new life. You can't fix it. You need a new one. You need a life that can only be given to you as God awakens your heart so that you would repent of your sins and turn to faith in Jesus Jesus is the one who paid for those sins. Now your new life has been bought and paid for. And so that's how it's this repentance for turning from our sin and faith in Christ. That God, it's in that situation, if you will, that God then unites us to Jesus and raises us with Him to this new life. It's not membership of a church. It's not walking an aisle. It's not even being baptized. It's faith in Jesus Christ as the one who paid for your sins. Now Christian, if, if you're certain, as certain as you could be of your walk with Christ, I want to encourage you to be careful that you don't have a physical walk that looks like newness of life when you really just got a lot of death on the inside. Lots of Christians, right, walk around, or at least they think they're Christians, because outwardly they look righteous. But this death to life that then exhibits itself in walking in newness of life and giving of yourself to God for the instrument of righteousness, that has to happen on the inside in order for this to all be not in vain. So, we have to turn inside. Someone who has been seated with Christ will present him or herself as instruments of righteousness. And I think one way that would be helpful for us in thinking about, particularly in our church, am I, am I truly walked from, new, from death to life, has God done that, versus am I just walking in what appears to be newness of life, Right? And I think one thing that will help us with that, just very briefly here, is in Romans 6.13, he says, But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. I think the question is, how do you do that? How does one who's been brought from death to life present themselves to God as instruments of righteousness? First of all, I want you to first note... That in Romans 6.13, that there is a presentation, there is a presenting of yourself to God. So someone who's been brought from death to life will present themselves to God as an instrument for righteousness. There's an active role on the follower of Jesus' part to present himself or herself to God. Now how do we present ourselves? What does that mean? Well yeah, it means actively seeking to be used of God for his righteousness, to be instruments of righteousness. How do we do that? i say, read your Bible, <laughs> pray, seek exhortation. I mean, here's the deal. If, if you're not turning to God's Word more than just here on Sunday mornings and maybe a little bit in house gathering, how are you presenting yourselves as instruments of righteousness? It's just very practical. I mean, sp- all the spiritual disciplines, praying, fasting, meditating upon God's word I was challenged recently by a pastor friend of mine he comes in and we sit down for lunch and, and he's getting ready to pray over the meal and he says I uh, he goes you mind if I read the verse I've been meditating on this morning and, and for the the my verse for the day and he kind of reads through that and and then prays from the context of that verse and thankfulness to God for our meal and I thought wow like it's a challenge to me to how can I do something similar. Now, what I don't want you to do is exchange like because what you can do is you can go well making reading your Bible as a fake walking in newness of life, right? So you do have to think why why am I doing this? Am I am I desirable to present myself as righteousness to God, or am I trying to make myself righteousness before God? And I think you can pretty easily discern that when it comes to something such as reading your Bible. If you see your desires, like I'm growing because I want to read my Bible, or because I want to pray, and, and those are things that are coming from joy in your heart, then it's probably walking in newness of life. If it feels like drudgery and so on and so forth, then there's a good chance it could be otherwise. I just want to say this present yourself as instruments to righteousness. This is what it means. To walk in newness of life and what it means to be brought from death to life. Like this person doesn't just try to get by. Like I think, how many of us try to in our Christian lives? Well, this is enough for me to get by. This is enough reading my Bible to check it off my list this week. I'm just doing it just to get by. One who walks in newness of life, who's been brought from death to life, doesn't just... Do it to get by. They look at it and go, this is life. This is abundance. This is joy. You all make fun of me all the time for being a a foodie. Right? I I don't, see see many of you, I'm going to exhort you here. Just eat to get by. Go read Ecclesiastes, okay? Don't just eat to get by. Why don't you put something in my belly like I'm filling up at the gas station, right? Like I'm going to go, not Speedway food. I'm talking about like you'll fill your car up with gas, right? So you know, I don't just, I don't just eat to get by. I I eat to enjoy, right? I eat to enjoy. Everyone gives me a hard time too because I'm always the last one eating. Now that's probably for two reasons. One, because I talk too much. Second, because I'm enjoying my food. I'm enjoying my food, like I'm like, oh, this is awesome. Last night, I have fought real hard with my wife to go get bagogi from kabuki. And it was delicious. <laughs> I got a Korean beef barbecue dish called bulgogi from a restaurant in Centerville called Kabuki. And it was delicious. I enjoyed my food. I even waited, like, I'm so starving, but I'm going to wait for my boys to go to bed so that I can enjoy my food, right? Amen. See what I'm painting the picture for you? When it comes to your walk with God, if you're walking in newness of life, you don't just do it to get by. You do it to enjoy. You do it because you love it. Someone who's walking in newness of life, it looks like someone who's going, God, I want to be an instrument of your righteousness. Why? Why? Because you've been resurrected. Because God's given you a new heart. Not because that's what the preacher says you need to do. Because God's given you a new heart. That's what the new heart looks like. That's how the new heart beats. That's the flow of the blood in the new heart. All right. Next point. He says this. Again, talking about this made alive. Made alive. So you were resurrected. And second, he says you were seated with Christ. You were seated with Christ. Chapter 2, verse 6. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. All right, so think about this. Uh, Just a couple implications of this. I mean, the main point is that he has seated you next to Jesus in the throne You're seated with Christ in the throne room of God. I mean, that is astounding just in and of itself. But think back to Jeremiah. He's talking about those who fear God. He's going to bring those in who fear God and have this awe and wonder for God. I want you to realize that only those who properly fear God forever could be seated with Christ in the heavenly places. I mean, no one just gets into that throne room. I mean, think of the greatest king in the world that if you would enter into the throne room uninvited, you could be killed. It's much more than that with God, the creator of the world, holy, unapproachable light. And he doesn't just say, hey, you can stand at the door and look in. He says... I'm going to, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't even just open the door and say, here, why don't you come in? No, he takes us, and he seats us with Jesus. I mean, for many of us, that's like kicking and screaming. You know what I'm saying? Like, we don't want to. We like this over here. And he's going to no, know you're my child, and I'm going to rescue you from this darkness. I'm going to seat you over here with my son Jesus, giving us a new heart. So not only do believers participate in Christ's resurrection life and being resurrected and then the life afterwards, they're also share his exaltation and his victory over the powers, the evil powers. The he sets us up with him. Now, this makes sense perfectly in the context that we would be seated next to Jesus. We'd be seated in heaven with Christ in the governing, ruling room of the cosmos, right? This is the room in which all decrees come from all rules all demands all governing for the entire cosmos comes from this room because what's the context here this makes perfect sense here we saw in verses one and two go back there and look in your bible he says you're dead in your trespasses trespass sins of course and then chapter and then verse two in which you once walked following what the course of the world Following the prince of the power of the air. What were you following? You were following the governing authorities of the world. And what does he say? I've taken you and put you above the governing authorities of the world with my son Jesus. So it's not that we're not slaves, just that we're not slaves anymore to the governing authorities of this world. But we are now above the governing authorities of this world with Jesus Christ. Now, I think you could take the theology and do a bunch of weird things with it, like, well, I can command demons and and those kind of things. I'm not, not going down that road. What I mean is that you're not slaves to them anymore, and your Savior, Jesus, commands the demons on what to do and what they cannot do. We are no longer under the authority and coercion of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. So if you're a follower of Jesus, think with me for a second. Because of where we are seated, Christians should be people with hearts and minds that are on the things of above. We should be thinking where are we seated at and should be thinking there. Now, Since we've been transferred from the old kingdom, this deathly kingdom, to this new kingdom where Christ reigns, then we do not have to succumb to the evil one's designs and his desires. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is now available to us as we live in this world and we take our stand against the evil one. And we're talk about practically what that looks like when we get to chapter 6. But right now, we've got to understand that we've given a new heart. We have the same power that Jesus. I encourage you this way. Having your mind on your seat in heaven means that when you look around this world, you should do so through the lenses of God's kingdom, His desires, His plans. Your vantage point is not from this elevation here any longer. Your vantage point of how do I interpret life's events? How do I decide what is good and what is bad? How do I decide the course of this life and plans? Your vantage point is different now. You're tied to a heavenly vantage point. Now, I also want to caution us because we can also be so stuck there that we're worthless here. It goes two two ways. We should be thinking not, what am I going to do when I get there? We should be thinking, what do I do on the way to there? What is my role in moving the kingdom towards that day? When Jesus returns. Okay. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to circle us back around to Jeremiah. right? I want to bring us back around to Jeremiah. We were rebels, dead, scattered throughout the earth. Well, what did I just do? I took Jeremiah 32 and Ephesians 2 and put them together. Then God brings us near, gives us a new heart, slash make us alive. Right? That's how he makes us alive. He gives us a new heart. Our old heart's dead. That's Jeremiah and Ephesians. Now, I want you to read on in Jeremiah 32, verse 40 and 41. He says this They were dead. Bring them new. Bring them near. Give them a new heart. And he says, I will make with them an everlasting covenant. So after this, bringing them near, giving them a new heart, raising them from death to life, I will then make a With them an everlasting covenant that will not turn away from doing good. And I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. So then Jeremiah says that God will never cease doing good to us. And that God rejoices in doing good to us always. All right, so God has made us alive because of His great mercy and love. Right, That's what we talked about last week. His great mercy and love, He's made us alive. I think love and mercy is kind of the how it came to be. But for what purpose? That's the question I want to answer now. I want to ask and answer now. For what purpose? For what purpose does He make us alive? Look at verse 7. So that, for the purpose of, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Jesus. God's further purpose in lavishing His mercy on us as sinners, raising and exalting them in Christ Jesus, was that His people would serve as a demonstration of His extraordinary grace for all of eternity. That this would display a gracious as God's free and glad choosing of men and women to be His sons and daughters. So think back to chapter 1 where, God, where He elects some to be His men and His women to be His sons and His daughters. That was intended to redound to the praise of His glorious grace. Remember that verse 6? says to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us and the beloved referring to the predestining that comes from chapter from verse 5 so it's to the, that is done to the praise of his glorious grace now a similar thought is expressed in that god has acted to save sinners so that they might serve to display the surpassing wealth of his grace so he chooses to the praise of his glorious grace and then he puts us on display to show the surpassing wealth of His grace. And I want to s- say this, Christian, you have been made alive so that God could display the surpassing wealth of His grace through you. To you, through you, for the cosmos to see. I hope, I hope, I hope, in your mind, that you've been putting together verses 1, 2, and 3 and are lingering there for a couple weeks, so that when we get to this point, that I hope this falls on you like a ton of bricks, that he, that God, would display the surpassing wealth of His grace to you, to me. Paul, having already spoken of the divine mercy and love, goes out of his way now to underscore the extravagance of God's grace. That God has done this so that for all eternity He might show us and those in Ephesus in Christ Jesus and by His kindness the wealth of His grace. In Christ, in the fashion of kindness, He's going to show us the wealth of His grace. Paul has already spoken of how costly redemption of believers was through the death of Christ and how that demonstrated the abundance of God's grace. You can go back and read verse 7 of chapter 1. He has also said that God considers His people to be His abundantly glorious inheritance. Also that God's purpose for His people is to provide them with an inheritance. What he's saying here is that in order that He might show, He has done Again, this indicates the purpose of these preceding verbs, made alive, raised up, seated with. For what purpose? In order to show His immeasurable wealth of His grace. The purpose. What's the purpose? Why does He do this? So that He can put on display before the cosmos, the universe, that He is a God gracious God that he's a God that shows undeserving favor to rebels by changing them forgiving them of their sins by the blood of Jesus and welcoming them as his children I mean what greater thing could happen I mean creating the world (laughs) that's 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 nothing right He he blew, you know, He spoke it into existence. Creating man, what did He do? He fashioned it out of dirt, you know, what the heck. Awesome. God does that. What does this task necessitate on God's part? What does it take to display God's grace to a rebel? It takes the death of His Son, Jesus. His grace is on display. And what's he say here? He says that all of this will happen. This will be displayed to us. You will be showered in God's kindness. You will be showered in God's kindness. Someone who deserved nothing but wrath. You will be showered in God's kindness. His riches. God's riches, of his grace. What Paul's saying is they're immeasurable. You cannot measure them. Again, this kindness is how God will display his grace. Kindness, I want you to think about this for a second. Kindness is kind of parallel to his mercy, his righteousness, his willingness to help those. Who are not following them by teaching them his commandments. Just kind of think kindness out. Think of kindness this way as well. Think of like benevolence and God's cheerfulness. And God would, that God would even look upon us with cheerfulness, that He would be giving to us, benevolent. Now, when you think about that in the context of God, like we think of that and like people want to give things, but then they want to kind of take things back, or they give things with an agenda and and all these kind of things. God is the perfect example of giving and not getting anything back because we cannot add to God's glory. Instead, God selflessly, benevolently gives to us and cheerfulness. He's going to do this in kindness towards us. Think of chapter 1, verse 5 through 8. It says, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. I mean, think kindness when you think of these words. And the surpassing wealth of God's grace is displayed in kindness to us in Christ. I mean, that's an amazing statement. Given that the recipients of this generosity, of this kindness, had been previously the enemies of God and liable to His wrath. But they are now in Christ Jesus, and God views them as He views His beloved Son. So God displayed the greatness of His power in raising and exalting Christ. Now in raising and exalting us, he displays the surpassing riches of his grace. All right? See, those two things. Chapter 1 is, is about this, displaying the greatness of his power and raising and exalting Jesus. Now in raising and exalting us, he displays the surpassing riches of his grace. Let me ask you this question. Do you live as though you have been shown the kindness of God and that one day you will experience an unhindered bounty, both in a mount and at once, and, and I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> Let me rephrase that. Do you live as though you have been shown the kindness of God, and that one day you will experience in unhindered bouncy the incredible kindness of God for all of eternity? Do you live that way? Do you show others kindness as though you've been shown kindness? Do you enjoy the Father as though you're the recipient of His kindness and the future recipient of unhindered kindness from this flesh? I mean, God rescued you. A rebel. So, just right? case you're missing something that I've been implying the whole time, this taking us to heaven showing us the immeasurable riches of His grace doesn't put you and I at the center of the cosmos. Because what's happening? It's not just so that you and I can experience the immeasurable riches of His grace. It's so that the immeasurable riches of His grace that we get to experience puts on display the salvific work of God. The saving work of God. That this God and forgive these people and make them His people. That's an amazing task. Now, again, if you're not sure if you're a follower of Jesus or thinking through that, I want to encourage you to just see the kindness of God in sending His Son to die for His people. That He would send His Son to die for them. See that God is good and worthy of all worship. I am encourage you as, as many of us have done, turn from your sin, trust in Jesus. And experience the kindness of God. Alright. So, last few thoughts here. Paul shows us that God intends to do good for us, not just for a few moments, right? Not that, he, not that he's just doing good for us the day that we said that, ni- that nice little cute prayer and walked the aisle and signed a paper for the church. And, and He's not going to just do kindness for us on that day. He's going to do kindness to us for all eternity. For all eternity. Might the sacrifice that God's calling you to today be worth it if you'd get your mind out of today and focus on His kindness for all of eternity? Wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? The giving up of something today, knowing that what's coming is the immeasurable riches of His grace shown to us in kindness for all of eternity? Look at verse 7. So that in the coming ages... So that in the coming ages. It's common in Scripture to say age, from the coming age. But he says in the ages to come. So the setting for God's grace to be manifested to His people is largely in the ages to come. So think about the grace you've experienced now and how immeasurable even it is. And he says he's going to show us that in kindness. And we're going to sit in the throne room of God. And experiences kindness. Like, I don't even know what that is, but it sounds awesome. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Now, it's plural here for a reason. Think of it like as one age supervening upon another, as one commentator said, like successive waves of the sea, right? The, the, you know, a wave comes in and it crashes, and that wave kind of goes underneath it, and another wave comes on top of it, and then that kind of comes back on the wave as ages upon ages upon ages. I mean, think about the ocean. When, does, when do the waves stop crashing on the eastern coast? When do they stop crashing? They never stop crashing. They continue and continue and continue. And that would be the length of God's immeasurable riches of His grace shown to us in kindness because we are in His Son, Jesus Christ. So because of God's great mercy and love, and by His grace He saves us so that He can pour out His grace and kindness towards us in order to point to His saving work. All of this done through Jesus. All right, let me tie this together and we'll, we'll close here in a few moments. The world, including you and I, is full of rebels, haters of God, enemies of God. Scattered throughout the earth. God rescues some of these dead people by forgiving them of their sins through Jesus Christ and giving them a new heart, spurring on repentance and faith, making them alive with Christ. That He raises them up and seats them in His very throne room in His presence with Christ now God gets all the glory as he displays his awesome grace in rescuing these people I mean look at the glory and might of God look at the glory do his name for the grace he has given to these people but you see these displays of glory don't stop at just seating us in heaven You see, God does good to us by showering us in the immeasurable riches of His grace towards us as if to say to the cosmos, I am great and glorious enough not only to rescue these rebels from the pit of hell, but I am glorious enough, I am powerful enough, I am wise enough, I am gracious enough to to make them objects of my intense, immeasurable grace and to shower that upon them for all. Eternity. And you know what he says about this? In Jeremiah 32, he says, I rejoice in this. I will rejoice in this. It's not just an afterthought. It's not just something I have to do. It's not just something I have to do to save my tail. It's something I get to do. It's something that I enjoy. Something I take pleasure in doing. And I don't want you to miss this. The big implication here that is being, that what, what this passage, one thing this passage, big point that it is saying without saying is that you and I were meant to be, we were created to be, and eh, most satisfied, most fulfilled, most joyful, most at peace, most comfortable. When we are the objects of God's kindness. We were meant for that. We we're created for that. So you can stop your pursuit of all of those things and just go before God. and say, God, I just want to be an object of your kindness. Just make me an object of your kindness. I just want to be an object of your kindness. I'm tired of seeking kindness here and kindness there and the delight of this over here and the delight of this over here. Father, I was meant to be an object of your loving graciousness shown to me in kindness. Please, help me to to just sit there as an object of your gracious kindness. Father. To read this last statement to you, one author said this, throughout time and in eternity... The church, the society of pardoned rebels is designed by God to be the masterpiece of His goodness. That He would do good to His people. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You that You have chosen to do good good to us. I was asked the other night, Father, as you know, how do I know it's real? And Father, I have to say, one of the reasons I know it's real, because I have faith that your kindness is coming as if I had seen it with my own eyes. But Father, also I'm thankful that even though that's by faith alone, that you give us just tastes, just nibbles of your kindness today. Whether that's in new life, in kids, or marriage, or... Church of people that love you, Father, and want to follow you. you, see your kindness in those things. You've given us your word for us to read and live by. Father, that is kindness to us. And Father, ultimately, we see your kindness displayed on a cross. And so, Father, let us, let us be people who desire To live in your kindness. Father, send your son's most precious name we pray.